This is the What Happened Today podcast, your daily history podcast that tells you what happened on this day in history. Brought to you by the Productive Leisure Network, online, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com, and on Facebook and Twitter, at ProdLeisure. I'm your host, Will Floyd, and what happened today, November 2nd, in 1917, the Balfour Declaration was officially issued by the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, Arthur Balfour, effectively declaring that the British government would help to establish a Jewish nation in the territory of Palestine. The Balfour Declaration has huge implications. Effectively, it gave support to Zionism from one of the major world powers. And because it was declared in the middle of World War I, the Allies of Great Britain, most notably the United States, were behind this push. But the actual issuance of the Balfour Declaration and its specific wording would create serious problems in trying to figure out what it did at all, creating many problems in the Middle East. The actual declaration itself was essentially a letter from Lord Balfour to Lord Walter Rothschild, who didn't have any official position, but as the second Baron Rothschild, was probably the most influential and prominent member of Britain's Jewish community. In fact, his father had been the very first Jewish peer in England, showing a change in relationship to Jews inside of Britain in the late 19th century. And the letter sent from Balfour to Rothschild said, Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation, yours. Arthur Balfour. The specific phrasing was quite odd, and it was debated about for quite a while. And involved in the debate over exactly how it should be phrased was, in fact, Lord Walter Rothschild. The letter was sent to. Also involved was Heim Weizmann, one of the leading Zionists of the time, who had been living in Britain since 1904, although he was born in what is now Belarus, and had had to leave Russia and the Russian Empire. And working with leaders of various Zionist groups and debating inside of the cabinet allowed for the declaration to be phrased in a specific manner. And that manner was effectively to be cautious about every little thing. One of the key ways to understand why the Balfour Declaration was issued when it was is simply to understand what was going on in World War One. Shortly after World War I began in the summer of 1914, various alliances came together. And one of the last nations to fully join among European powers was the Ottoman Empire, always considered essentially the edge of Europe and possibly but not really a part of Europe. The Ottoman Empire joined Germany and Austria-Hungary as one of the central powers. This meant that Britain was at war with the Ottoman Empire and began to think, well, what can we do to disrupt the Ottoman Empire? 
One of the possibilities was more strongly supporting Zionism than the British government ever had before. Zionism had really begun in the 19th century. And with men like Theodor Herzl, various European Jews were asked to come back to what was considered the Jewish homeland in an era where nationalism first became a reality that various places throughout Europe were seeing themselves as coherent nation states based on cultural, linguistic, and religious unity. Many Jews were excluded, and it was thought that perhaps finding a home for the Jewish people in Palestine became a key idea. Of course, the Ottoman Empire was never quite thrilled with the idea of people moving in and creating a brand new nation. They sometimes tolerated various Zionists coming in. And in fact, there was a small population in and around Jerusalem when World War I broke out. But the actual issue on the ground in Britain regarding Zionism was essentially to not care. In fact, when Heim Weizmann first tried to get anything going on with Zionism in Britain, he found problems with the recently resigned prime minister who had pushed through what was known as the Alien Act. That minister was Arthur Balfour, who, due to problems in the Boer War in Africa, had lost power. But he remained in parliament and remained part of the leadership of the Conservative Party. And so when war broke out, there was always a sense of, well, we could help out our war effort against the Ottoman Empire by embracing Zionism. But there were easier ways to try and disrupt the Ottoman Empire. In late 1915 and early 1916, there was an agreement between the United Kingdom, France, and the Russian Empire that actually divided most of the Ottoman lands. In what was known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, Russia would get essentially most of Turkey, including Istanbul, and then also Armenia. Britain essentially got the southern end and a strip along the Mediterranean coast that would include Jerusalem. And France got in the middle. It was a nice, neat way. However, they had to actually figure out how to, you know, take the territory from the Ottoman Empire. And in this way, they turned to various Arab allies, most notably Hussein bin Ali, the Sharif of Mecca. In June of 1916, he would declare an Arab revolt, something he could only do with support of the British. So in 1917, there is a complicated, difficult trench war going on across France. In the Ottoman Empire, full frontal assaults such as Gallipoli, which took place mostly through 1915, didn't allow for assaults into Turkey. But success was happening in Ottoman lands, through Egypt, the Arabian Peninsula, even into Syria, which would include sort of officially the Arab lands, meaning Palestine. And so in 1917, there were debates about what should happen in Palestine. Should there be an official reckoning with the idea of a Zionist movement getting support? Should it be ignored? Should effectively the land actually be taken from the Ottoman Empire before anyone could declare what they could do? But the Foreign Office began meeting in 1917 with Weizmann and Rothschild. Balfour, who was a very odd man, seemed much more open to the idea. Although he had lost power as a conservative prime minister in 1905, the war gave him a new opportunity. Under coalition governments, he actually served under liberal prime ministers. And becoming the foreign secretary to David Lloyd George allowed him to pursue opportunities that he thought were important in the war, such as weakening the Ottoman Empire. And so throughout 1917, conversations began about what to say. By the summer, it was clear that the prime minister, the foreign secretary, and other members of the cabinet all wanted to support the Zionist movement. However, there was also the issue of getting American consent. As such, 
Balfour actually traveled to America and met with recently appointed Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who was the first Jewish member of the Supreme Court and a leading American Zionist. He also learned that Woodrow Wilson supported a declaration to assist the Zionist movement. However, in coming to an actual declaration, there were many issues. The original drafts came mostly from Heim Weizmann and then Walter Rothschild, and they had much stronger language. They wanted a declaration to say that the British government had announced its conviction, its desire, and its intention to support Zionist aims for the creation of a Jewish nation in Palestine, that essentially the main goal of political Zionism to create a nation state for the Jewish people in Israel, in Palestine, should be agreed to. As the various drafts went back and forth, the final version sent out on November 2nd was really a complex compound, nearly run-on sentence of 67 words. It was almost carefully constructed to avoid being absolutely clear. The use of the term national home for the Jewish people was specifically intended not to declare support for a state or a nation, but some place that Jewish people would be safe. Additionally, there was some talk for a while that it wouldn't say for the Jewish people, but merely Europeans of Jewish ancestry who were fleeing persecution. Also the phrase, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, more broadly speaking, was even more mushy in terms of meaning. Palestine was not necessarily an obviously delimited area. Mostly it meant that part of the Middle East along the Mediterranean coast near Jerusalem. But how far inland it went, exactly who was considered possibly a Palestinian who would have been maybe a Syrian and exactly which groups belonged where was unclear. And the British government did not say they will absolutely ensure that they will support a national home for the Jewish people. They said that they would use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. That meant that there was support, but they wouldn't necessarily go all the way. And the weird carve-out clause that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, left open the question of exactly what would go on with all of the non-Jews in and around the area marked out for a national home for the Jewish people. Also, the phrasing of the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country not being prejudiced was a bit odd too. It was almost a way of saying, if Jews would like to stay in Europe, we aren't going to force them to move. It essentially was trying to cover every single base while showing general support for the Zionist cause. And that's probably the best that could be said about the Balfour Declaration. It didn't absolutely lay out any guidelines. It did not clearly say this is what must happen. Instead, it kind of gave general support. And of course, it was all sent in a letter. But it had an immediate impact. Once it was actually sent out, there was a general reaction of shock by many people. Zionists were extremely excited. This meant that there was official support for the first time from a major power for the Zionist cause. Also, throughout November and into December of 1917, there was serious military advancement in Palestine by the British. They officially had control over the area and could do a bit more than simply saying we support in Palestine, the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people. They had actual control over Palestine. But also it created serious backlash among the local non-Jewish populations in Palestine. It essentially was a European power proclaiming that they would do whatever they wanted that had nothing to do 
with the local populations. Many Arab leaders thought that this was a rejection of terms already agreed to in various agreements that led to the Arab revolt in support of Arab war aims, which would have given control to Arab leaders fighting in the Arab revolts. Throughout 1918, though, the various allies would support the Balfour Declaration and the aims, but rarely would there be any easy opportunity for the British to enforce anything in the Balfour Declaration. Although Britain would control what they now call the Mandate of Palestine through to the end of World War II, so essentially for another two and a half decades, there was always trouble. Even at the end of World War I, when it seemed that Britain had control over the area and had specific aims in support of Zionist organizations, they couldn't really get anywhere inside of Palestine. Increasingly, though, there would be more and more European Jews moving to the Middle East, including eventually Chaim Weizmann. And people would continue to debate what exactly Britain's role was. The language of the Balfour Declaration meant that there didn't need to be an obvious presence. And so essentially, the support of a national home for the Jewish people would come into conflict repeatedly under the British with the idea that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. With the rise of Nazi Germany and the atrocities of the Holocaust, there was now more of an impetus for the creation of a national state at the end of World War II. And yet the only real controlling document about such a creation was for Britain the Balfour Declaration. The brand new United Nations had to take up the effort. And yet really what happened was Jews in mandatory Palestine took control, and in the first Arab-Israeli war, were able to create the nation-state of Israel, something more than a national home for the Jewish people. But the conflicts between Jews and Arabs in the area would only intensify. And while they might have been there anyway, the establishment of British support during the Balfour Declaration while also trying to cover every base meant that really there was very little that could be enforced. And all of these issues, all of these problems stem from one little letter from British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lord Walter Rothschild. What would become known as the Balfour Declaration, which is what happened today, November 2nd in 1917. That will do it for today's episode, but as always, please check back in tomorrow for a brand new episode because we are a daily history podcast and we do put out a new episode each and every day. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you are listening to us on either iTunes or Stitcher, please subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating and leave a review because those are the ways that you can help us to get onto charts and be heard by brand new listeners. You can also help us out a bit more directly by going to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash productive leisure and becoming one of our patrons. At Patreon, patrons give small monthly contributions to support ongoing creative work like a podcast network. So if you want to hear more of the What Happened Today podcast, or any other Productive Leisure Network podcast, or if you want to help us to create new podcasts in the future, please go to patreon.com slash Productive Leisure and become one of our patrons today. You can also follow us for updates on everything to do with the Productive Leisure Network on Facebook and Twitter at Prod Leisure. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.